Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 185. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Back again with Mr. Rob Bernacki from Island Top Team. Rob, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I think we're going to do some fucking. We're g- <laughs> Sorry, did, was that too hard an opening? <laughs> <laughs> wow uh there we go okay yeah yes you're technically you're correct so the topic which is the best kind of correct so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so the topic today is we're going to talk about something that has come up on the podcast multiple times but that i you know actually i really wanted to put together a <laughs> a hard and firm definition on <laughs> and that is this this mentality and process that you guys call fuck your jujitsu at island top team so i, I know you've brought this up recently on the podcast and the episode that we just did with Stefan, but it's not the first time this has come up. And I've had a lot of people inquire and ask me about this methodology. And honestly, I'm far from an expert myself. I still have a ton of questions about it, but I'm hoping that maybe today you can help me resolve that and understand that. So probably no need for introductions because I know you were just on the podcast, but Rob, what do you want to do here to kick this off? Do you want to give a quick intro and explain the system? Yeah. So, I mean... Man, with this, I don't know if I can quickly explain it. I think we're going <laughs> to probably spend the episode explaining it. But basically, this is our proprietary constraints-based skill development system that we have at Island Top Team. That is, It's basically designed to, well, primarily originally is designed to develop skills that most people consider to be intangibles in jiu-jitsu. Like, oh, that guy's just good at that, or that guy's just good at that other thing. But these are things that like, Almost regardless of how ephemeral people perceive any particular skill to be, I believe a skill can be developed because fundamentally to to some degree, I think everything is a skill. And, you know, like, for example, you know, people say, oh, that guy's a good instructor or that guy's a good coach. There are so many sub skills to being a good instructor. Like there's a huge difference between being skillful at teaching a private class versus being skillful at teaching a group class, versus being skillful at teaching a seminar, versus being skillful at coaching at a tournament. Like those are all different skills. And you can be exceptional in one area and really suck donkey balls in another if you don't cultivate the skill. And so I've always tried to look at as much as possible every subset of what we're trying to do and how to develop it. And so when it comes to students who frankly, like I run a hobbyist club in a small town, I I don't have high level athletes training with me on the regular. And so, and I'm not a high level athlete. So I wanted a methodology where we could try to replicate the sort of skills that high level jujitsu athletes have that 
I only ever saw high-level jiu-jitsu athletes have, right? Like hobbyists just really suck at certain things because those things are not taught effectively in most schools. And so the, the origin of this fuck your jiu-jitsu methodology was like, how can we take regular people who train a few times a week and give them a skill set that, uh, you know, won't be obviously as as accurate, as precise, uh, you, won't, you won't have the same timing and athleticism that a high-level jiu-jitsu athlete will have, but you'll have the broad strokes of the the movement patterns that elite jiu-jitsu uh, athletes express, and, and how can we build that and create that, and, and that's where fuck you jiu-jitsu comes from. Got it. Now, before we dig into the specifics of how this works, we got to explain the name, you know, why not just call this the Island top team proprietary personal development system or something like that? <laughs> well, I mean, for one, you, you must agree. It's a lot catchier than that. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of people who are going to download this episode based on the name alone. So I think probably that explains itself. Yeah. So uh, like the actual origin of it is I was training at Ryan Hall's 5050 Academy 10 years ago. God, I'm old as fuck. Jesus. We got a whole episode on that, by the way, if we want to talk about how old you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Ryan gave a speech in training where he described his mentality towards, you know, training with somebody where basically if that person is better than him and he approaches that person's guard 90 times and gets swept 90 times on the 91st time, he's going to walk into that guard like he doesn't give a fuck about that guy's jujitsu. And that's a mentality and that's a great mentality to have, but it's not necessarily a mentality that everyone has, obviously, and it's not necessarily a mentality that somebody can just adopt even if you tell them to, right? Like you can, uh, there's just so much wasted air on the part of instructors who are like, just do this <laughs> with their students. And like you can tell someone to change their state of mind or change their mentality, but that's just, you know, it, that's a fool's errand. So what you have to do is create very specific parameters that take the, uh, the, for lack of a better term, the willingness or the lack of willingness out of the hands of the student, right? Like so much of how we train in jiu-jitsu, because I mean, let's face it, like jiu-jitsu is full of like meatheads and idiots, even at the instructor level, right? Like people are not smart. There's a lot of self-congratulatory masturbation about how this is human chess and we're all so damn clever. No, it's fucking not. It, like it's just, this is, is it, like it, don't forget that we're modern day samurai. Yeah, yeah, when we're all lions and we're all sharks and all this fucking bullshit. Like, <laughs> you know, like I mean, let's face it: if a community can be enthralled by Jordan Peterson and fucking Joe Rogan, they're not that bright. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of morons in jujitsu, and it doesn't matter how much you tell them about mentality; it, it doesn't matter. But if you set hard rules and you're like, you are not allowed to do this, you are not allowed to do that. That works on intelligent people and it works on morons. So it's kind of perfect. So from this like phrase that Ryan Hall used in class, I was already kind of working on this idea of, you know, how can I get better at certain things if I'm a moron, if I'm a meathead, you know, how can I make sure that I don't fall prey to the limitations of my own mind in training and having stuff get in the way where I'm like, oh, I don't want to lose to this person or whatever. And so I was trying to figure out these parameters. And again, like this is coming into the fore a lot more recently. People are adopting a lot more constraints-based learning. But again, we're talking about 10 years ago, I hadn't ever heard the term constraints-based learning. And I was just, just trying to figure out a, you know, a way to develop these things. I had had 
quite a few instances at the time where I was dealing with like elbow tendonitis and like grip stuff. And so there was a lot of times where I was rolling without using my hands, like basically just using legs only guard retention. And so that was one of the other sort of foundational elements of fuck your jujitsu is like, well, you know, I'm going to roll with you and I give so little of a fuck about your jujitsu that I'm only going to use my legs. And so those kind of experiences were the, the incipient experiences that created fuck your jujitsu. And we've built on it extensively since then and added, you know, as much as we can in terms of different areas of development that we're trying to focus on as much as we can in terms of how many different layers of constraint that we're trying to introduce. But fundamentally, the idea is that one individual is quite limited in what they're allowed to do. And the other individual is either unlimited or, you know, very, very slightly limited in what they are allowed to do so that we're sort of replicating that mentality of, I do not give a fuck about your jujitsu and I'm going to limit myself and allow you to go buck wild so that I can develop certain skills. Got it. Got it. So there's a lot to unpack there. And the first thing to probably just discuss, I mean, I think for most long-term listeners or people who are somewhat studied in sports science, they'll, they'll have heard the term, the constraint-based or the constraint-led approach. We did a whole episode with uh, Rob Gray from the Perception Action podcast a while back on this topic. So anyone who wants a long-form chat about that can check the archive. But basically the idea, and it's not totally alien to most people in jiu-jitsu, is the idea that you can target specific skill development if you put constraints around training. And at the most basic level, when we talk about things like positional sparring, that's a really, really base level explanation of a constraint-based approach. Basically, the instructor has said, okay, we practiced, I don't know, side control today, so we're going to start training in side control, right? So basically what you're at least trying to do at the bare minimum is steer the direction of the training so that it reflects the skills that you want to develop. I would say that most instructors probably go about that far into thinking about the constraint-led approach and don't go any farther. I would agree. I had done plenty of situational sparring in my jiu-jitsu prior to developing the fuck you jiu-jitsu methodology. And the limitation of that, and this is where I felt like I had to improve on it. The limitation of that is if one person is, you know, better than the other person, whether it's within that position or just overall, there's just a, a, a really hard ceiling on how much development actually happens. You know, like if I'm a brown belt and you're a white belt and we start sparring side control, if I'm the one that's on bottom, I'm going to escape instantly every time. And if you're the one that's on bottom, you're never going to escape. Yeah. And, and almost no development occurs. Yeah, that is a, probably an experience that is going to be very familiar to almost anyone who listens to this, because I certainly have had that same thing, too. You know, when people talk about systems like fuck your jujitsu, the first thing I think about when it's explained to me is, oh, is this just positional sparring? Because I already do that. But it's not. That's just a single piece of it. And to your point, positional sparring is really a, a pretty limited way to actually skill develop, because I think most people who listen will have had this exact experience 
sense, you know, we've all done positional sparring and usually it plays out exactly the way that you said. Like one of two things is going to happen. Either if there's a massive skill mismatch, it's not really going to be a fair play. There's going to be like in the case of side control, either one person is just constantly getting out or if that person is on top, they're going to just hold the other person forever. So yes, you're sparring a position, but you're not really learning anything. You know, if you put me in there with a white belt and you ask me to hold side control on them to do positional sparring, I can hold that position for 10 minutes if I want, but nobody's going to get any value out of it. So there's more to the constraint-led approach than just creating arbitrary restrictions. That has to be done somewhat intelligently, um, which is, I think, a good thing to think about because a lot of the way that we do it when we talk about positional sparring, we're, we're giving face time to the idea of, okay, we're training this particular piece of jujitsu today, but there isn't really a plan in terms of how training that is going to make us better, which I think is the piece that you're trying to solve here. Well, exactly. And like one of the, the key word there being sparring, as soon as you call it sparring, people are like, oh, the, the point of sparring is for me to win the sparring. <laughs> like, you know, we're, we're having a match. And, they, and like this, I think we, we discussed this a little bit in the episode with Stefan, where like people who don't compete are much worse about this than people who do compete. You know, if you compete, especially if you compete frequently, you could give a fuck about a role in the gym to some degree in, in the sense that like it doesn't prove anything. But if you're the guy who never competes, man, your roles in the gym are going to be to the death a lot of the time because that's your only chance to, you know, to show that you can win anywhere. And so especially when you start to add that element of like, yeah, now it's positional sparring, that, that the intensity gets ramped up. So by just, first of all, giving it a different name, we're trying to gamify it. Like we're, this is where it's not a sparring round. It's a, it's a play round. It's a, a round, you know, we, we use the term explore the jujitsus. You're trying to explore your movement set and you're trying to find out what your partner's movement set looks like and create a, an iteration of how many movements deep can we get before our knowledge fails, before our reactions fail, before our thought processes fail. There's, there's you know, a lot of different ways that we can do it. And so that's the, the first step in improving on this idea is it's not sparring. I'm not trying to win what I'm trying to do. And that's what, again, what the term is, is like, fuck your jujitsu is so important because we are trying to plant the idea in your head that the, the way to be successful at this, the way to be good at it is to use almost as little effort as possible in stopping them from doing what they want to do. The idea is that I'm so confident in my ability or I'm trying to develop such confidence in my ability that I'm going to let you go about as far as you can go into your, you know, whatever. And we'll talk about the different types of fuck you jujitsu in a bit, but like, I'll let you get so far into your attack that I have no choice but to then develop, you know, good late stage reactions, good mid stage reactions, all these sorts of things, you know, depending on who I'm working with, I'll let them go different you know levels of depth into their attacks but because i'm so confident that i can let you get really really far into what you're doing it unloads the the expectation of it's sparring and i'm supposed to win because you're you're giving you know, you're creating a handicap for yourself you're giving the other person such a head start you don't have to feel bad about losing the exchange you, you know under a lot of circumstances you're supposed to lose the exchange you know lose in quotation marks so it just, it takes away a lot of the, the unhealthy mind state that people enter into when they're doing sparring. 
Yeah, 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 got it. And I, you know, as a hobbyist myself, I can definitely relate, you know, most, and a lot of the time, this is kind of the fault of the way that we teach and train jujitsu. We kind of act, you know, we've talked about this extensively, including on our last visit, how uh, a lot of gyms try, basically market jujitsu kind of like fight club. And the idea is it's so effective, just come in and train and see for yourself. And the idea is you throw in all of the new white belts and they get just absolutely tuned by the blue belts and they realize, wow, this jujitsu thing works really well and so they sign up right that's the idea is that once you feel jujitsu and try it firsthand you'll see the power but all of this kind of i think leads into a culture where people roll in the gym like they're actually trying to fight and at some point you have to kind of take your foot off the gas at least from a mental perspective there because if you're always trying to win you have different parameters than if you're trying to learn because if you're trying to learn you're going to be doing things like you said like putting yourself in risky situations situations where that are harmful to the ego, you know, situations where if you go there, there's a good chance it's not going to work out. Whereas if you're just sparring to win, if you're just rolling for fun, basically, then you're going to gravitate towards your A game, which means you're going to do repetitive things. You're going to do the same thing over and over again, because I mean, look, that's how you would want to train your A game, right? You want to get reps on your A game. But the problem is the more you do that, the less you're focused on skill development. And the best use of time in the gym in most situations is in skill development. So I like the idea of kind of intentionally, it sounds like a big part of this is to intentionally almost kill or or remove the ego by creating a situation where losing is honestly kind of expected, right? You're putting someone out of handicap. Yeah, we're trying to get people. It's just a, are you familiar with the term estate break? No, why don't we explain that? So it basically, it's it's like a psychological trick to break somebody out of the state of mind that they're in, right? So if you know if you're having a really intense conversation with somebody and it's getting you know amped up to the point where it could be an argument, and then you tell a joke, you're creating a state break. You're intentionally diverting the the state of mind ah. that is that is amping up. So when you know when people start to get ready, okay, it's time to roll. You, you know, you're getting into a certain state of mind. You're like, okay, you know, it's, it's grip my teeth. It's time to get buckled down. I'm going to go hard and we're going to get this sweep and blah, 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 blah. Right. So it, the term fuck your jujitsu itself is a state break. It's like, oh, yeah, fuck your jujitsu. I get lots, well, you know, how could I get all super amped up for something with such a stupid name? Right. Like, <laughs> right, right. And then the, the parameters themselves. Are a state break because you you know you you approach somebody like the foundation of fuck your jujitsu was fuck your jujitsu sweeping and so like I'll start to talk about the rules of that a little bit so the rules are as the top person or as the passer and a passer isn't even the right term because you're not allowed to pass but like as the as the top player you're instructed to approach your partner's guard. Again, with the idea of I don't give a fuck about your jujitsu, I'm going to walk forward and allow you to establish whatever guard you want. So there's no engagement face. I don't hand fight with you. I don't stop you know your legs. I don't try to put you on your back so I can start running passing routes. I don't do any of the stuff I would normally do if we were rolling. I would just walk in casually, saunter into your guard and let you pull me into single leg X or, you know, put me into spider guard, whatever. And then from there on out, once you have established your guard, it's still incumbent on me to give you the opportunity to try to sweep me. So I'm not going to, once you establish your guard, start prying your hooks off or you're removing your foot off my hip or anything like that. I'm going to try to balance myself on top of your guard within the pocket so that you have the ability 
to still attack me. Like, for example, if, if I let you put spider guard on me, but then I just like back the fuck up and try to stuff your legs, that's not fuck your jujitsu. I've got to be pretty much balancing on top of your guard and giving you a crack at sweeping me. And how much of a guard you let the person establish is now, that's where we get a little bit variable and a little bit modular, right? Like, you know, let's say, you know, somebody puts me in Delaheva and then does a sit-up sweep and wraps my sleeve between their legs and get and transfers the grip and grabs my collar. They're already 98% of the way into the sweep. So like if I do that with somebody really good, they're definitely going to sweep me. So I, we don't say that you can't grip break at all, but basically you set your level of difficulty. So I always say that, you know, like when I do this with white belts or blue belts, I let them get literally every grip they can possibly get and then have them try to sweep me. If I do this against higher belts, I might deny them one sleeve grip or I might deny them a really deep collar grip or whatever. But then after that, I'm just, I'm trying to balance. So this is where I start to actively develop my skill set, which is I've let you get a bunch of control over me and I'm giving you my center of gravity, which is one of our main concepts is control of your momentum and center of gravity. You never want to give your opponent your momentum and your center of gravity because that's too much to expect to recover from against someone good. But if we're trying to develop a skill set, I'm going to now willingly give you that control. And then you're going to try to sweep me. And if I have not given you enough control that you are able to put me on the mat, then I'm fucking it up. Then I'm being too conservative. So that's a really good immediate indicator is if we're doing fuck your jujitsu and you literally can't off balance me to the point where at least I'm having the active post or my butt is hitting the ground, then I'm just being too stingy or you just terribly suck at sweeping. Got it. And then once my butt touches the ground, we're in that phase of sweep completion where this is again, this is one of those like intangible skills where like, how do you keep somebody down who's really trying to not get swept. And conversely, how do you develop the skill of denying somebody sweep completion, which is, you know, how do you, how can you be butt knocked down, you know, one post missing? How can you still recover from that? Because every good competitor is insanely hard to put down and even harder to keep down. And also every good competitor is very good at knocking people down and very good at keeping them down once they do so. And so that is one of those things that is considered an intangible skill that only good competitors have that, you know, when people visit my gym, they're like, holy fuck, it's really hard to sweep your white belts, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's just because we do this. We do this quite regularly and we, ha- we engage in these battles, but we engage in them in a really playful way where there's, it's not a big deal if I don't get any sweeps or it's not a big deal if I get swept 10, 15 times in the round because we're just playing a game and I want to find out where is the edge? How far can I go and still recover from the sweep? So that's the idea behind it. Got it. So when it comes to any kind of sweep or really any attack that requires control, usually the the best answer here is prevention over cure. Usually you want to block people from ever even establishing the sequence that's going to lead them into achieving their goal, because it's like you said, it's a lot easier to escape or get out of trouble in the early stages than to go to the late stages. So it sounds like what you're saying here is 
in the case of fuck your jujitsu sweeping for the person who's on top, their job basically is to be to kind of go to within their level of comfort. So if you're someone who's just not very good or very experienced at jujitsu, you might be focusing more on how do I just prevent this person from even grabbing me? Whereas on the other hand, if you're a black belt and you- Well, no, I wouldn't say that you would focus on how do I keep this person from grabbing me because that that's hand fighting. That's engagement phase stuff. And that would be trained entirely separately. The idea is that even as a beginner, your job is to walk in, let them establish a guard, and then just see what you can do about it. Even if what you can do about it is just fall down 20 times, <laughs> you still need to be in that spot. Because frankly, the reason that that happens is because most adults have like an incredibly poor level of body control and body awareness, right? Like when when I teach new students, uh, like the first, man... I'd say at least six months and probably as long as two to three years. So much of what we're doing is just teaching them to not be like just feeble morons who fall down <laughs> at loud noises. Like it's unbelievable how easy it is to sweep people. Even like, dude, we've had plenty of purple belts and, and I don't mean like shitty purple belts, like purple belts who have skill in almost every department of jujitsu, but goddamn, if they don't fall over so fucking easily, because they've just not spent any amount of time actually working on proprioception and balance. Yeah. And that's just something that needs to be developed. Whereas like we've had students come to me that are like break dancers or like gymnasts and I barely have to teach them anything because like mm -hmm. so much of what you're learning in your first few years of jujitsu is like, just don't put your body into stupid positions where they don't work. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, and if you, if you have that in like, I don't know, I was about to say innate, but like, like if you have that skill that's been developed by other athletic pursuits, then we don't have to spend much time teaching. Like when, when I show fuck your jujitsu to somebody with a, like a break dancing background, they're like, oh yeah. So I just do like balance. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I guess I don't really need to, you don't need to learn this. You're already good at it. Right. Like we, we had a guy who was a break dancing coach come to us years ago and when we would do fuck your jujitsu, he was basically, and he was a white belt at jujitsu, like every other thing in jujitsu, he was not good at. But if you tried to sweep him in a fuck your jujitsu round, literally, if you were not at least a very good purple belt, if not a brown belt, you had almost no chance of sweeping him yeah. because he just had good balance. He knew where to put his hands and feet. He knew how to land and pop back up. And just knowing how to do that was enough to completely shut down a good number of white belts, blue belts, and purple belts who'd been training for years and years. And this guy had like two months of training and was unsweepable. And so that's the, that's what fuck your jujitsu gives you is it, it makes you work on the things that otherwise you'd be like, no, I don't want to be there. I'm not going to let you get a hold of me. What's well, like, no, you are going to be there. You're going to let them get a hold of you. And if you just get ragdolled for the whole round too fucking bad, you will eventually get good at it. You know, it's uh, it's funny that you bring that up because this is something that I actually have heard Stefan talk about, which is this idea that especially in the early stages, people are way too willing to just seed the position before it's time. I mean, there's like, you know, you were talking about center of gravity. There's a tipping point with a lot of sweeps where, OK, at a certain point, 
you're probably going to be going down. But especially with beginners, they seed that sweep way too early. You yes. know, just just at the slightest wobble, they just fall over, right? Like they, they don't seem to be aware of where that tipping point is because up to a certain point, you have a lot of options to defeat that sweep. And then after you go beyond that tipping point, you got to realize, okay, I'm going to hit the floor. I can still get out of this though, right? That's not the end of it. If I'm on my way down, I still have options. It gets harder, but that doesn't mean you just give up. Whereas what I observe from a lot of people, especially at the more junior level, is as soon as they're kind of like in that direction where they feel like a sweep is coming, they just basically seed the position and they're more than happy to just go onto their butt and play guard, which I I mean, is not a really a great mentality to encourage when you had the top position just a second ago. Well, exactly. And, and you know, as a beginner, if you're going to roll with somebody who is in any way better than you, they're going to sweep you almost instantly. And you're going to end up on whether you're going on bottom because you have got shitty balance and you haven't developed it and you're conceding the position too early, or you're just going on bottom because the other person definitely just is good enough to sweep you. You're still on bottom and you're staying on bottom for the rest of the round, or at least until you get submitted. And then maybe you get to start again. The beauty of the fuck your jujitsu rounds is in the volume of training. So it's, you know, the first layer of it is it's a state break. It takes you out of the wrong mindset. The second layer of it is it's forcing a set of rules on you that make sure that you're working on the thing that you're trying to develop. And then the third layer of it is you're getting to experience a volume of movements that is so much higher than it is in a normal round. Like if you break down the amount of like discrete movement exchanges that occurs in a round between two white belts or two blue belts or whatever, especially if they're, you know, really trying to not allow things to happen, the amount of movements is actually quite minimal, right? Like uh, I, I like the term rally. Your brother is actually the first one that used that. And I'm a tennis nerd. So like, you know, a rally in tennis is what you're hitting the ball back and forth. And like the, the longer the rally is, the more times the ball goes back and forth over the net. And so when it comes to jujitsu, people have this mentality of, I don't want to rally. I don't want a bunch of exchanges because I might lose one of those exchanges. Whereas if you're trying to develop, you want to rally. You want to have as many exchanges of movement as possible. And you know, the, the more experienced guys know that and they're, and the more experienced you are, the more skillful you are, the more you can rally. As a beginner, it's harder to rally. So we're forcing you to rally and to have and I mean, it's an exponentially greater number of exchanges in a fuck you jujitsu round, right? The people who use this methodology have gotten back to me so many times, whether it's people who are you know, actually, you know, our affiliates or like other instructors that are using our pedagogy section on BJJ concepts, or just people who've, you know, heard of it. And like, they'll message me on Instagram. I'm like, man, I try to fuck your jujitsu round. Holy shit. It was so tiring. Well, yeah, it's because you're used to an output of like, you know, 10 to 20 exchanges per round. Whereas the output in a fuck you jujitsu round might be a hundred or 200 exchanges in one round. So like the volume of movement is so much greater. And if you can increase the volume of movement without really beating up your body, which this will, you know, because it's a, so much more playful and we're, we don't have that like really heavy degree of explosive movement or, or isometric intensity with the muscles, you can do fuck your jujitsu rounds even though they're like they're cardiovascular demanding because you're moving a lot more, you can do them very safely and with lower impact because they're so playful. So you're just experiencing way, way, way more jujitsu in a round than you normally would be. And hence the acceleration of skill development. People who do fuck your jujitsu just get better much, much faster than people who don't. 
Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen so many roles where the instructor has tried to steer the training by saying something like, Okay, we did close guard today, so let's start our rolls in close guard so that we get some reps. And what winds up happening, of course, is people start in close guard, but within five seconds, they've gotten to some other position that they really want to be in and that they want to work on and that they're comfortable in. And then you never see close guard again for the rest of the role. So you wind up not actually doing anything for skill development. And I think this is, a, you know, it's funny. Jiu-jitsu is a hobby for a lot of people, and it's a fun hobby. And I think a lot of people, they train it from a perspective of fun. And in, in that sense, they train it from a perspective of comfort. So they kind of play the game that they want to play and they play the positions that they want to play and and they lean towards the things that are already solidified within their game plan. But the result of doing that is, yeah, you don't get a lot of quality reps doing things outside of the comfort zone if you don't have a system like that, because left to their own devices, most people will just steer back to whatever their their comfort game is. And that means that systems like this become very important because they force people out of that comfort zone and into areas of growth. Well, and I'm really glad you brought up that word fun, actually, because that is yet another layer of this is is we're because we're lowering the consequences, we're lowering the, you know, the win loss sort of paradigm or removing the win loss paradigm. Or at least in the you know in the negative sense, like you can you can certainly be you know happy losing because your the win was that you got so far into somebody's offense and managed to still recover so many times that when they eventually sweep you, it doesn't feel like a loss. It feels like you know still a win because you you developed so much. But like when when we're doing fuck your jujitsu rounds, it's fun. You know, like it allows you to explore so much of, again, just like the movement patterns that you would not normally get to explore that there's a, there's kind of a ratio of, you know, familiarity to novelty that we all need as human beings to, to, to stay engaged, right? Like you talked about, like people stay in their comfort zone. And the problem with that is there's a, you know, obviously a comfort level to that, but it doesn't feel challenging. And then there's, a level of challenge where something's so difficult that it's just demoralizing. And so I, I think, you know, video game programmers tend to have this kind of sweet spot that they're trying to hit where like if the game is too easy, then it's just boring. It's called the difficulty curve. There you go. Yeah. And then if it's too hard, then you just you throw your fucking controller at the TV, right? So what we're trying to do here is give people a really different access point to the difficulty curve of jujitsu. We're going to make certain things really easy and other things quite difficult. And for the, you know, just for the, the different person in the role, for one person, it's very easy in the sense that like, holy shit, I just get to like, try to sweep you and you're not going to stop me. You're not going to try to pass my guard. You're not going to run away. Cool. This is awesome. And so that's really fun for the, the person trying to do the sweeping. And then for the person on top, it's like, Oh man, I got to try to not get swept after I give this guy 80% of what he needs to sweep me or 90 or whatever. Damn, that's really challenging. And so we're putting you into those different aspects on that difficulty curve. And then we flip it. That's why like with the rounds, it's always halfway through the round, you switch and you go top for bottom. And then the, the sweeper becomes the, the sweepy top player and the sweepy. Exactly. And then as you do this with different partners, you know, that, that difficulty curve gets very different, right? Like uh, one thing that Rory does quite well is, you know, when, when people come in, he just like, he gives them the most demoralizing fuck your jujitsu experience of their life, which is like, good luck trying to sweep Rory 
He's a brontosaurus. You can't right. sweep that guy. He's so huge. Yeah, his his limbs are so long, and he's he used to be a skateboarder, so he's got already well developed balance, and he's done you know hundreds, if not thousands, of rounds of fuck your jujitsu with good people who know how to sweep. So it, it, like, if you're not a legitimately like very very good grappler, you don't even have the slightest prayer of sweeping him, even if he allows you all the grips. He'll just literally stand there and you'll struggle to move him. So there's so many different points on that difficulty curve that you can hit with this that it can be fun for anybody with almost anybody, right? Like a white belt can do this with a black belt and both can learn and both can develop and both can have fun. So I think that's a huge, huge part of why it's successful and why it's effective is because it's challenging in a way that is open to participation from the entire gamut of students that you're going to see in a class. Right, right. Now, something I just want to dig into and clarify here. You mentioned earlier that if you're doing things like grip fighting and the, you know, playing the engagement phase that you wouldn't necessarily do fuck your jujitsu. Am I correct then in understanding that mostly you use the system for things that are more along the lines of like middle to late stage defense or? Yeah, it's very hard to do fuck your jujitsu with opening game. So we like, for instance, we will have separate games for winning a hand fight and getting to a guard or winning a hand fight and getting to a passing position because that's it's really difficult to do that slow and it's really difficult to do that where you're allowing the other person to do something because the whole point of opening game is you know it's it's not fuck your jujitsu it's fuck you i don't want to see your jujitsu <laughs> you know it's like i don't want to find out how good your guard is i don't want to find out how good your wrestling is i don't want to find out how good your passing is i'm not going to let you get to your initial position because then I'm starting on a defensive cycle. I don't want to be behind the eight ball at the beginning of a match. So that that's a very different thing that we're trying to develop. That's something we work on very separately from fuck your jujitsu. It's not the same thing. Right. That makes sense. That yeah. kind of is in line with the way that I train things like grip fighting and hand fighting. I find that one of the one of my favorite ways to teach that is when I want people to focus on learning things like grip fighting, I put that in a box and I basically say, OK, the job here is we're practicing grip fighting. As soon as someone establishes a grip, we're done. Right. We're yeah. not going any further because that it, now we're into real jujitsu and we're trying to teach prevention here. It's a different thing. And I think probably it merits a different way of teaching. So I get that. that I understand that. Yeah, with fuck your jujitsu. So the, the 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 original two fuck your jujitsu methodologies were sweeping and passing. So in the passing version, the the restriction is on the guard player in that you are not allowed to make grips of any kind. There's one exception. I'll go over that in a second. You're not allowed to make like establish a guard of any kind. So you, you basically play a recumbent guard. You pull your knees to your chest. And you're not allowed to egg beater. So like if somebody grabs your ankles, you can't just immediately break the grip. So you allow them initial control. And from there on in, they are allowed to try to pass your guard any way they want. And you are not allowed to establish a guard. So no no clamps, no hooks. You can frame, you can high leg, you can grand be, you can do any of the guard retention movements that you want. And then the exception to the grips is in the gi, if somebody grabs your pants and runs a toriando on you, you can grab their sleeves and do that kind of sit up, push the arm away, lever-based kind of lever and hip escape retention movement. 
but you, you can't even really like put spider hooks in with your feet. You just allow them to run their passing routes to the best of their ability. So you're practicing responding to like really heavy passing pressure and then tons of high volume passing movement. And the passer gets to practice passing routes, right? Because you, you don't generally get to pass someone's guard with a guard pass. You practice you get to pass someone's guard with your second, third, fourth, whatever attempt. Again, unless you win the initial hand fight and just get to a passing position right away and like, you know, Andrew Wiltsey style, get a deep underhook knee cut type thing going on or whatever. With the exception of things like that, generally speaking, you've got to unwind someone's guard, attempt to pass, they'll do a guard retention movement, you'll try to respond to that and back and forth, and then eventually you break through. So you're getting to practice that kind of exchange of guard retention movements where you're really trying to internalize the automatic transition to the next pass, the next pass, the next pass. That's the most tiring one because both participants are just having to go really, really high pace. Yeah, I was going to ask. So the the next question is like, how intense do we get here? Because when you're talking about practicing your passing, I mean, at, at a certain level, you can burn a lot of calories doing that. So oh, you absolutely can. Yeah. So the, like like I said, that's the that's the most intense one, regardless of how relaxed you're being about it, right? Like, but again, I can. You know, as as a black belt, I can do this with most colored belts and it's not that difficult. I can just retain my guard pretty easily. And they're just getting to practice trying to go to the next move and the next move and the next move. So it's there's not a tremendous cardio demand on me. But like if I were to do this with a, you know, a good black belt or a high level competitive, you know, purple belt, brown belt, whatever, then I would definitely just like it would just be a, a serious cardio demand and you should get your guard pass doing it. Like, like if you don't get your guard pass during fucking jiu-jitsu passing, it just means you're way better than the other person, especially in the gi once like grips are established, that sort of thing. You should get your guard passed. Right, right. Makes sense. So I, I think that that's an important thing because, I mean, I remember training with very, very basic positional sparring back when I was earlier on in my journey. And I remember we would do similar drills. I mean, not as, not as thought out, but the idea would be that one person is playing the passer and the other person is playing the, the passy. And I would feel awful and beat myself up if I actually let the person pass me, which I think is an example of how you're doing something similar to fuck your jujitsu, but the mentality is all wrong. Right. And I yes. would say that a lot of people do that where they're, and I think that might be where the confusion comes in, in terms of, okay, what is this program? I, I already do this at my gym. Well, there's a difference between positional sparring where with the intent to win versus positional sparring with the intent to learn and improve oh hugely and that's why again there's, there's that modularity of how far or how deep you let the other person in right like I've, i'm getting ready to compete in a little in a couple of weeks here and I've, i'm doing rounds with rory for instance where i'm just doing basically fuck your jujitsu but i am also getting ready to compete so what i'm doing is i'm modulating how much like how far into his passing sequences and how deep into like the the lever control I let him get. And I'm just trying to like, I don't want to spend a bunch of time on late stage guard retention. What I want to do is spend a lot of time on fairly early stage guard retention where I'm just replacing frames, repummeling and keeping him at a distance. And I, you know, if I, if I allow him to get past the first layer, past the second layer, past the third layer, he's going to pass my guard. He's too good. And like, especially recently, Rory's gone through a 
I want to say a growth spurt, not puberty. <laughs> yeah, basically. But like Rory's decided that he wants to, you know, actually be a real boy and he started weightlifting and he's just a lot stronger. We used to be fairly close in weight. He's about 20 pounds heavier than I am now. So like if I let a guy who's, you know, it's a bit taller than me, but has those weird long limbs. So the reach difference between us is actually significant. A guy with a pretty big reach advantage on me and now quite a bit of strength advantage on me. If I let him get to like a decent passing position, he's just going to pass my guard. Yeah. So I'm using that modularity now to keep him a little bit farther out, but I'm still not gripping. I'm not doing anything to like stop him from initiating passing sequences. I'm just trying to have those passing sequences be more on the outside. Whereas if I were to do this with a, you know, one of my purple belts or one of my blue belts, I might get better training from letting them get past those first two layers and, and, and get a little bit more late stage. So it's because it's so variable in you get to decide your difficulty level for these rounds, right? Especially once you've done it for a little while and you become proficient at it and you're dealing with people who are less proficient, you're, again, if we go back to that, that the difficulty curve, it's going to be like embarrassingly easy if you just stuff them at the initial movement exchange. You, you, you allow them to go through as many movements as they can skillfully perform so that you can still respond skillfully, but just with a much lower level of intensity. So like I, I might use the same exact movements that I would be using against Rory. It's just with Rory, I'm going at 100% speed. And with somebody else, I might only be going at 20 or 30% speed. And I'm still just getting the muscle memory and the reactions of, of responding to somebody. God, God, makes sense. So we talked about sweeping and we talked about passing, but you mentioned that there's other parts to the system too, correct? Yeah. So those two are fairly, I mean, I think they're the most useful because honestly, 80% of jujitsu is guard playing. So like sweeping and not being passed and passing the guard, right? So if you can, if you can never get your guard passed and you can sweep everybody and you can pass the guard you're going to win. <laughs> like, or at the very least, there's no way you should lose. So that, those, are, those are the two that you're going to get the most mileage out of from like an 80-20 analysis. That, that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. The other two that are probably the most useful are what we call fuck your jiu-jitsu top control, which is basically you start in, you know, as close to side control or like an approximation of side control as possible. And the rules of that one are that you are not allowed to put your chest on the other person's chest and you are not allowed to mount them like where your hips are directly on their hips. Basically, you're only allowed to keep somebody in a top control position via the use of frames or levers. So like I would start with my knees down and my hands down on the mat and my chest completely off of you. Right? So, but I'm, I'm in front of your guard. And as soon as the bottom person reestablishes a position, we reset and we start again. So the bottom person can either turn in and just re-guard. They can turn in on wrestling, so like turn it on a single leg, or they can turn away and go to turtle. If they achieve any one of those three things, we reset and we start again. So they, like, they can basically do whatever they would normally do if they were on the bottom and not playing guard. Whereas I'm only allowed to make frames, 
So, you know, I can place my hands by your neck. I can put my elbow down. I can, I can pop up to knee ride and I can use my knee as a frame to put some weight on you. So I am able to put weight on you or I can move around to north south and I can put my head on your abdomen, but I'm not allowed to sink my chest. I'm not allowed to like cross face you and connect my hands in any way. So I can't connect my hands. I can't put direct chest to chest pressure. I can grab your wrists. I can pin them like there. You'll see me do this to visitors or to students all the time where I'm like stepping on their biceps and stepping on their leg. And I'm basically like surfing them like a gargoyle and they can't (laughs) escape. Like they're, they're pinned underneath of my limbs and they're so twisted up and their limbs are so pinned that they still can't escape the bottom position, but I am not putting my hips on them. I'm not putting my chest on them. So that would be like the most extreme version of what you can do when you have a skill disparity. And that particular one is honestly like we've had visiting black belts, try it and they're God awful at it. They have absolutely no ability to hold. And I'm not not, like not shitty black belts, like proper skillful black belts that can do every other thing in jujitsu well, but because they've never actually tried to hold somebody down with anything other than like heavy cross face pressure, heavy wedges under their hips or like crushing mount pressure or like, you know, pulling up on the, the collar and the, and the pant leg and neon belly and just trying to break the person in half. Like most people have never devoted any time to trying to hold somebody down Whereas if somebody, for instance, had maybe done some wrestling and was familiar with like leg riding, or if you just, you know, were the big brother and you were like pinning people's wrists behind their heads, you might have some experience with using lever-based and frame-based pins. You'd be able to at least do something. But like most people who come to our club that are skillful grapplers, they can pick up the fuck your jiu-jitsu sweeping. They can pick up the fuck your jiu-jitsu passing without a ton of work. But the fuck your jiu-jitsu top control you're just going to suck at it for months until you've just done a whole bunch of it. And until then, people will just either regard on you or turtle on you instantly and you will not be able to stop them because you've just never done anything like it. And that one for me is the most fun because it is, the, you know, again, the the challenge level for the top person is very, very high. Yeah, yeah. Now, help me understand the the thinking here because, I mean, you could argue, of course, that, look, you're taking away things like the crossface and chest-to-chest connection, which are really in a lot of ways, the most important parts of dominating side control. Couldn't you argue that, okay, by removing those, you're you're teaching people to not focus on realistic situations? Because I get that you want to create dynamic movement for the person on the bottom. No, because we we also will just, we'll like, we'll situationally spar side control where you're trying to crush people. Uh, Okay, okay. Yeah, no, this isn't a substitute for learning how to do like devastating, crushing top pressure. Like Like anybody that's rolled with any of our like, slightly higher belts has experienced unreal crushing top pressure. That's not a limitation. What it does provide is when I want to submit you, if I'm just crushing you in the way that like you can't move, then frankly, I'm unlikely to be able to submit you. Right. If you, you know, in in, the, in a competition context, you are incentivized to try to move like crazy to prevent a guard pass from happening. But once the pass happens, you're not necessarily incentivized because you're like, oh man, like what am I going to do if I overcommit on escaping? I'm just going to get subbed. So what we're cultivating here is the skill of giving people 
enough room to move, but then being able to respond to their movement with skillful changes of direction and with recovering pressure on them in a way that allows us access to submissions, to taking the back, to transitions into submission control positions, to transitions into knee ride. Being good at holding and maintaining knee ride is quite difficult to develop if you don't have the ability to balance in top positions by using frames and using levers. I see, I see. So this is a way of introducing that idea. So yeah, it's it's not an either or sort of thing. It's just an, it's an adjunct and it gives you the ability to also, like aside from just the idea of the I'm going to willingly give you a little bit of space so I can try to get you to move enough so I can submit you. But when you're dealing with somebody who's very good at escaping side control or escaping mount, which yeah, especially in Nogi with the like how much better people are getting at the kipping escape and how much better people are getting at just reestablishing the elbow connection and just re-guarding, it's frankly, like if you don't have the ability to respond well to somebody who's able to force a good escape movement and all you're left with is just holding on, trying to hold on to their torso and cross-face them once they re-establish knee elbow connection, you're going to really suck at, like you're basically going to get funneled back into the guard and have to pass again. You're going to really suck at that transitional moment where you no longer have chest-to-chest pressure and the other person is starting to establish frames. Got it. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. So this kind of harkens back to actually we did a premium series with Margot Ciccarelli where she talked about fighting with rhythm. And one of the things that she describes this as she talks about the difference between static control versus dynamic control. And uh, yes. when you're thinking of static control, you're kind of thinking of that traditional jujitsu crushing pressure where you're just you're not moving. Right. The idea is you control the person by denying the movement opportunities, which is great if you can do it. But like you said, there comes a point where just due to fluidity or just explosiveness, sometimes you just can't hold your opponent down. I certainly have this problem being a smaller guy, right? I can establish the best side control cross face on someone possible, but if they outweigh me by a significant amount, I have to understand that a big explosive movement for them can displace me. So if the only type of control I have is that static hold and squeeze control, I don't have a fallback. And that's where being able to control people by just dynamic movement and staying one step ahead of them becomes very critical. And I would say that's probably one of the main differences training with a, you know, a white or a blue belt versus someone up above. White and blue belts, they suck at dealing with static control. That's why side control is such a brutal technique when you're newer in jiu-jitsu. It's so hard for new people to get out of. But on the other hand, once you get more experienced and you learn to be dynamic, you can create more fluid movements that make it both harder to hold people there, but also harder or easier in some ways for the person on top to transition so they don't lose the position as badly as if they were just squeezing. So, okay, really interesting way to think about it. So Yeah, and, and just to follow up on what you mentioned uh, with, with Margot, where she, where she talks about rhythm. So what we're trying to do with the Fuck Your Jiu-Jitsu top control is allow you to be the one who dictates the rhythm and to break the rhythm, right? Like you establish a rhythm, you break the rhythm. That's how you fuck with people, right? So when we're doing the fuck your jiu-jitsu top control, because you're getting so good at feeling the rhythm of somebody who's doing an escape from bottom side control, basically, whether that rhythm is going to become a turn away to turtle or a turn in on wrestling or a regard, you get, you develop such sensitivity to the other person's rhythm that 
you are then able to read that rhythm and apply it in a live role so much better. And you're able to break that rhythm by just knowing, oh, you're about to do that. You thought I was going to hold you, didn't you? I moved instead. And that's how you fuck their rhythm up because they, they, they're so used to people just squeezing for dear life to try to hold top position that they don't have the same sensitivity because they're preparing for like a full blast explosive movement that they need to do to create the space that they need to then get their escape going. And when you feel that tension, you feel that stored energy about to be released, you can then, it's like, it's like they're moving in slow motion. When you've got a lot of practice at responding to those movements, and that's what you cultivate with, with this type of fuck you jiu-jitsu. It's funny. I remember very distinctly how much it blew my mind when I was earlier in my journey, when I realized I'm not obligated to sit there and lie down and squeeze if my opponent is trying to escape. Like if they're trying to actively get out and they're having success, I don't have to hold on for dear life. I can pop up to neon belly. I can transition to the other side. I can, I'm allowed to move. You know, I don't have to just sit there and squeeze. And I think that's such a tendency of people earlier on in the journey to when they get side control to get that cross face and just squeeze and hold for dear life because they, they don't know at that point how to deal with, okay, well, my opponent is about to move. I can feel they're about to move. I can feel them planting their feet on the floor. So I know a bridge is probably coming. You know, you can feel that. And, and it's like you said, you get that sensitivity after drilling this enough because the other person has to prime their body in a certain way to create and generate force. And so you can feel this often based on where they put their feet, where they put their hands. And that becomes an important tell that lets you become dynamic so that then you can, like you said, you can create frames, you can switch and you can maintain top control without just sitting on top of the person like, you know, like just a giant walrus. There's other ways to control. Well, exactly. And and so much of that, and again, this is like why we do fuck your jiu-jitsu. So much of that, reluctance to move comes from being a beginner in jujitsu and the lack of movement being your security blanket because anytime movement happens, you're getting fucked up. (laughs) So you're literally like you're learning the worst possible lesson you could learn as a beginner, which is it's good to hold on for dear life and not move at all. Yeah. Right. And that's why it takes so long for people to develop skills. Like the idea that it takes 10 years to become a black belt is frankly just down to abysmal training methodology. There's yep. no reason it should take more than five for somebody who trains relatively frequently if they train intelligently. And so, you know, at least like, you know, kind of a basic level of, of black belt type movement. Not I'm not talking about like elite black belt, but like just, just having the ability to do the different things that a decent black belt should be able to do. It shouldn't take as long, but so much of most people's formative years in, in grappling is just spent latching on for dear life for fear of being defeated during a role. And so mm-hmm. the, the role of fuck your jujitsu is to just force people to move around a whole bunch and just get rid of that stigma of, yeah, but they're going to get me. Who fucking cares if they get you that they're supposed to get you, right? And so that, that takes so much of that that hesitation that fearful that that trepidation that that lack of movement and it just turns it all into a game where you've got to move a whole bunch and yeah your movements aren't going to be skillful they're not going to be optimal but the only way to get them optimal is just to do a bunch of the movements over and over again until they become optimal like that's 
You know, you, you, you can't learn something and do it right the first time. You have to be afforded the opportunity to fuck it up a million times before you get anywhere near being really good at it. And so that's, again, what fuck you, the point of fuck your jiu-jitsu. It's really the best way to develop some of the, like, playfulness or, like, the, the sort of positive connection to movement. The positive connection to what we're trying to do here is have as many exchanges as possible so that we improve, not try to limit the amount of exchanges so that I don't lose. It's literally the polar opposite. Like the mentality that the majority of people have that the majority of schools foster during rolling is the polar opposite of what you need to get good at something. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think a big part of that, I mean, if I were to say how I fell into this trap, and I don't know if this applies to everybody, but I remember very distinctly when I was trying to decide which martial art I wanted to study. Of course, like every young, impressionable male, I watched the UFC and I saw, you know, UFC one. I saw, of course, I saw Hoist Gracie doing his thing. And I remember the announcers describing Hoist Gracie's style as being like a boa constrictor. I remember those exact words and how what he was doing was taking away movement and squeezing and preventing their opponent from moving until they basically suffocated and had to give up. And that really left an impression on me for a long time about what jujitsu is supposed to be. And you can, I mean, you can certainly see a lot of examples of this, right? There's a lot of amazing pressure players. And when you're a white belt and you're, you know, you're sparring against other senior people, it sure feels like they're doing that to you, where it basically feels like they're just squeezing you to death. And so for a long time, I had it in my head that jujitsu was all about static control and pressure. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it is very much about static control and pressure. And I would argue that especially as you get older in your journey, it's great that those things are there because you can play a really effective, slow plotting style. And I am a slow plotting kind of guy, but there is this whole other side of the coin, which is a more dynamic game plan. And it fucking definitely works, right? I mean, you see people winning world championships by being dynamic. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the other side of the coin. And so, you know, they say, why would you ignore 50% of the body? Well, why would you ignore 50% of your movement options, right? You're not. Well, that, that's exactly it. It's, it's, it's not an on off switch. It's not an either or it's not binary. There's pressure is good and necessary. Movement is good and necessary. The, the thing is that because most people default to being so just isometrically contracted so much of the time, we're introducing something that's forcing, you know, again, it's a state break. It gets you out of that mentality. And, and frankly, by being able to be relaxed and movement-based, it makes you better at learning how to apply pressure because good pressure does not come from squeezing your balls off. Good <laughs> pressure comes from like a proper weight distribution and sinking your weight and knowing how to relax into certain positions. Like people who are devastating with their pressure are not people who are just like, you know, isometrically contracting as hard as they possibly can because you'll just, you'll, you'll hit your lactate threshold, you'll burn your muscles out. It just doesn't work that way. So it's, it's important to just, to, just to like, to note that, that we're not trying to say, don't use pressure. Don't try to crush people. Don't do any of that. It's just that as a beginner, for the most part, trying to learn pressure, you, all you're going to do is squeeze your balls off and it's not productive. And you're so far on the, like over to the, the wrong side of the spectrum of being isometrically tense that if we can get you out of that, get you moving, then for one, you'll develop those skills that you otherwise literally will not develop unless you compete at a high level. 
right? Like, I don't think I can like recall a single instance of somebody who's, and we've had hundreds of people visit my gym. I don't think I can recall a single instance of a visiting purple belt that wasn't like a competitor or a high level competitor that had any ability to resist sweeps. Like they were just super, super sweepable. And with a little bit of fuck your jujitsu, that changes very quickly. But like it literally, whether they were pressure based, whether they were movement based, like it did not matter. They just were not afforded the ability to cultivate this skill. Because if you, like I said, if you don't just do tons of competing, if you don't do hard competition training, if you don't get to a point where your life depends on not giving up those two points for the sweep, you're never going to develop that ability. So there are just certain skill sets that you won't be able to develop without this sort of thing. But aside from that, there's a a mentality and approach towards training that you will not develop unless we we stick it in your brain with this, you know, unless we fuck your brain with our mind dicks <laughs> and uh, and get you out of that isometric uh, contraction type of state of mind and get you into a, I need to move when it's appropriate to move. When pressure is being developed, like, you know, we talked a little bit about like the safety briefing stuff that I do with my students. Part of the the safety briefing is informing them how to properly cultivate pressure. Right. And like if I'm 200 pounds and I'm rolling with somebody that's 150 pounds and I just drive into them and crush them, I'll be like, man, I'm working on my pressure game. No, I'm not. They're 150 pounds. They couldn't stop my pressure game if it sucked donkey balls. Like I'm not cultivating pressure. What I want to do is put my body into a position where I'm just kind of static, but I'm not driving all my weight into them. And I want to give them the ability to move a little bit so that I can then respond by distributing my weight slightly in a direction that inhibits their movement. That's how you develop pressure. You don't develop it by putting all of your weight on someone if you're bigger than they are, because you're not actually responding to uh, subtle feedback in movement, and you're not able to then respond with your own subtle responses in your body's weight distribution. So even from the perspective of like, cultivating top pressure, you could use the fuck your jujitsu approach, which is, I don't give a fuck about your jujitsu. I'm going to set my body in such a way where I put the minimum amount of weight I can on you that still allows me to put some pressure where it's difficult for you to move, but you can always move a little. And every time you move a little, I move a little in response. And that would be the fuck your jujitsu approach. The other approach would be I'm 200 pounds. I'm going to crush you right away and just you know, squeeze really fucking hard on my cross face. And there we go. I'm working on pressure. Yeah. Which one do you think is going to lead to quicker development in a really devastating top game? Now, hey, Rob, all I know is that iron sharpens iron and pressure creates <laughs> diamonds. So it, when you cross face a white belt and you make them quit, you're just weeding out the weak and establishing who the modern day warriors are, right? And showing them who's alpha. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, so the last thing I guess to get into, you mentioned that there's uh, one other type of fuck your jujitsu, right? We talked about fuck your jujitsu from the perspective of the sweeper, the passer, top control. Uh, you said there was one other, correct? Yeah. So with, at that point, we're we're talking about fuck your jujitsu with the submission control. So like probably the easiest one and the best one for this is the, the what we call leg spaghetti. 
you're just trying to uh, develop the the skill of leg entangling and maintaining leg entanglements and then creating exposure for whether it's heel hook or ankle lock, whatever, like basically digging out the foot. And that that's an area that is also responsible for like dramatic improvements in skill because the intensity level is so low. So again, this is very distinct from sparring leg locks, right? Like I've gone over this a fair bit with your brother where like the idea is that we're not, like if you, if you do leg spaghetti and you never get caught, you're doing it wrong, right? If you're just trying to not allow somebody to entangle your legs, like if we just take a double seated, you know, guard position and we, we leg pummel and I'm trying to just not ever let you get 411 or a saddle or whatever on me, that's not proper leg spaghetti. That's just sparring double seated guard. Then you're just, you're just leg pummeling. What we're doing here is we're double seated guard and I'm allowed, like generally speaking, there's like, there's a, let's say a pitcher and a catcher in, uh, in, in this type of game. And like, I'm going to allow you to entangle my legs and I'm going to focus mostly on just, again, depending on my relative skill level to yours, I'm going to focus on whichever stage you're getting to trying to give you feedback. You know, I might let you fully entangle me, but I might slip my knee right away. Or I might let you fully entangle me, but I will like really fight to hide my heel and not let you expose my heel. Or I might let you leg entangle me and expose my heel and then work on heel slipping or toe slipping or whatever. So like there are various degrees of exposure of like offensive depth that I can offer you and then start to respond. And then I can also try to extract exclusively, or I can try to extract and counter leg lock you, or I can try to respond with trying to get on top and like pressure through your leg entanglement. And then conversely for the leg entangler, I can focus entirely on finishing you. I can just do leg spaghetti where when I get a leg entanglement, I'm just trying to stay on your leg and dig out the heel and get a finish. Or I can focus on just holding you there for as long as possible and not worry so much about digging out, but just making sure you do not get your knee clear. Or I can focus on when you respond to my leg entanglement by turning in the direction you need to to clear your knee, I then respond by coming up on top or uh, taking advantage of the back exposure. So there's, again, there's a, a wealth of, a breadth of skill development that we can really kind of tap into here, depending on where you are. You know, if, you, if you're just beginning leg locking, you're certainly not going to be going about trying to like take someone's back off of a leg lock defense. You're just going to be trying to hold the leg entanglement and have good wedges and that kind of thing. So, you know, and again, as a, a more experienced player, it doesn't help me to clear my knee the second somebody puts me in standard ashy if they're a white belt or a blue belt. I'm going to let them get 99% of the way to breaking pressure and then I'll heel slip at the last second, right? So it, it, like, it's got all of the hallmarks of the modularity, the, the game playing. And because we're both seated, you know, like Rory and I, when I first came back from training with Eddie Cummings in New York and we were just trying to get good at all this stuff, Rory and I would sit there and do leg spaghetti for like, an hour or two a day and it wasn't tiring like it, we, we, we would still just train in the evening like everything was like normal like we hadn't done anything whereas if we did an hour of like fuck you jujitsu passing my god we'd be exhausted like there's no way we could do that right <laughs> so the, the leg spaghetti version of this has the the highest level of like potential volume that you could generate 
because it's so relaxed and you, you, because you want the other person to get fairly deep into their leg entanglements, as long as you're not an idiot with it and you don't fight deep breaking mechanics, you're not going to get hurt and you're going to experience so much concentrated time. It's like, it's, it's like, it's literally like downloading skills. It's like putting it on fast forward. You can just get so much more time in with deep leg entanglements and just get really, really familiar with it in a hurry. So, and you can take that approach and apply it to other submission control positions, but it's nowhere near as easy to do as it is with the, with the legs because you're both sitting on your ass. With the other positions, somebody usually has to be on top. Somebody usually has to be on bottom. There's a lot more movement involved. And, you know, you, you, you could use this approach somewhat to, um, to deal with like back control and stuff like that. But really the, the main ones are the four ones that we discussed. Right, right. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, I I can tell you in that last example, too, why I think that that's extra important. When you are more experienced, and I mean, this is just like old guy Steve talking, but you know, I, I remember when I was young, I would look at all of these old guys who were setting their ways and I would think, ah, I'll never wind up like that. But I got to say, you know, pushing 40, as you get older, it gets harder and harder to break yourself out of your habits and your routines because you've got so much vested time in doing things the way that you always did them. It just becomes such a habit that's hard to break regardless of how you try. So it becomes the more experienced you get, the more important it becomes to actively try to pull yourself out of that comfort zone. And I've certainly found this too. You know, I found, for example, that when I, if you were to give me a a new technique that fits into my game relatively well, like you've got some single leg X guard sweep that you want to teach me, generally super easy for me to integrate that into my game because I've got so much context and that's just a, a little nuance on my existing comfort zone. But I remember when the leg lock explosion started to happen. I mean, to this day, I still really struggle with it. And I've, I do the exact same thing there that you talked about at the beginning where I got really, really good at not getting into leg entanglements. And it's not because I don't think leg locks are bad or anything, but it's just because you inherently find it easier a lot of the time to things onto your comfort zone that that just work more in line with what you've always been doing. So it's a lot easier for me to just take, you know, to, if someone wants to go into a leg entanglement, it's a lot easier for me to just try to avoid that and go back into kind of like a classic knee cut type game, which is what I want to play. The problem is I'll never learn leg locks if I keep training that way. And you've got to really fight to, especially as you get more senior, it gets harder and harder to bolt new things onto your game because you've got that whole experience problem where you have so much vested time that you kind of get entrenched in your ways. And it takes a lot of deliberate effort to not let that happen. Yeah, there's, I don't know where I got this phrase from, but the phrase is inertia is the most powerful force in human affairs, Mm. right? Like if you've always done something, you're going to keep doing it. It is so hard to break out of a rut. So yeah, it's again, like the, the, so much of like the fuck your jujitsu stuff. The reason we've codified it so much is because it is so hard to break out of a rut. It's so hard to get out of a comfort zone. It's so hard to actually change your mentality towards or your, or your approach towards something. And so like, that's why it is, we've thought so much about what the constraints should be. And we've thought so much about how to present it to people so that we can actually just turn it into a game. And as soon as you turn it into a game, it, it again, it lowers the stakes, lowers the consequences, and it lowers that that dedication people have to, well, I've done it this way. You know, when you make, like, it's, 
it's okay to try new things if you're just playing a game. It's not okay to try new things if you're sparring because you don't want to lose, right? So there's been quite a bit of thought put into how can we present this in a way that overcomes the inertia that people will unfortunately fall prey to if not if they're not given these parameters to break out of that. Right. Absolutely. Now, I'll ask you the question that I get very often when we're talking about stuff like this. I get this is one of the more common questions I get from listeners, which is, hey, Steve, I I love this idea of new ways of teaching. I think it's great that jujitsu is evolving and we're talking about integrating, you know, sports psychology and sports science best practices. But the problem is I train at a very traditional school and my instructor is a 60 year old black belt under Horton Gracie and he refuses to do anything new and he's entrenched in doing things the way they've always been done. I love the school. There's no other school within 30 miles of me. What do I do? How do I balance all of this new stuff with having a very traditional instructor? Yeah. And that's honestly the the toughest question. Cause I like, we get this experience a lot with visiting students. They come here for a week. They're like, holy fuck, that was awesome. And more so than anything, learning how to do fuck your jujitsu properly is what we really try to get visitors to take away, right? Like if you're going to be here for a week, you know, yeah, I'll teach you some techniques and you, you might learn something that you, you can definitely put into your game and all that. But in terms of like long-term massive impact on your game, even people who've seen it on the some of the instructionals that I've done with Stefan or they've seen it on the site, they still find that feeling how we do fuck your jujitsu here and experiencing how I teach it in class gives people so much more insight into how to do it on their own when they go to their home gym. And so that's the thing that we really try to get people to take away from, from their visits. But when they do, it's still always like when, when somebody basically gives me the like, hey, at my gym, it's like, I don't really have anybody that I can do fuck your jujitsu with. What can I do? I'm, I'm kind of flummoxed. Like I like there's no, you know, other than like change gyms, right? Or like you, you can try to, you know, whoever your closest buddy training partner is and just get them to buy into this. Be like, look. When it's time to go to open mat, when it's time to do sparring, when we do our roles, at least if it's me and you, like you might not be able to get anybody else to buy in, but if you've got one friend at your academy and you can get them to agree to do a fuck your jujitsu round, even if that's the only round of that class that you get to do fuck your jujitsu, do it. They will get the benefit from it. You will get the benefit from it. And just maybe other people observing it will be like, oh, what are you doing? And where'd you get that from? And maybe you'll be able to convince them that it's a good idea. If you are a more experienced practitioner, you just, you do fuck your jujitsu rounds on them, whether they want to or not, right? Like I've, I've been to plenty of gyms and I walk into people's guards and let them get grips and they try to sweep me. And after a little while, they're like, dude, what are you, like, you're clowning me. That's not cool. I'm like, dude, how many chances did you get to sweep me in that round? Like 20, 30, 40? How many chances would you have gotten to sweep me if I just came in and smashed through your guard in 10 seconds and then just ran a train on you submission-wise for the rest of the round? Like, would you have enjoyed that more? Or do you feel like maybe you got more out of it because I scarecrowed over your, your guard like a marionette with you pulling strings? And yeah, you didn't sweep me. And yeah, maybe you felt like you got dunked on a little bit, but how much more jujitsu did we actually do in that round, right? Like if you can kind of flip it on them because people like when they finally figure out what you're doing, they're like, oh, come on, man. 
you're just letting me try to sweep you. I'm like, yeah, and you can't. So, you know, like maybe you need to get better at sweeps and not bitch about what I'm doing, right? So, like, yeah, like if you're a more senior belt, you should just be able to do it. Like you can just play guard without ever making any grips on people and let them try to pass. Voila, you're doing fuck your jujitsu passing, you know? It's just that if they, you know, you can even just say, hey, man, I'm trying to work on my guard. If you pass my guard, can we just reset? Very few people are asshole enough to say no to that, right? And I mean, and if they are, I mean, for fuck's sake, don't train with that person anymore. They've like, that's a, you know, that person has like fucking social disorder. <laughs> they need to be exposed, right? So like, j- just just be friendly and ask to do a round where you're working on that stuff. And then just put the limitation on yourself of not doing the extra things that would cause you to be immediately successful. I love how much thought you've taken into working like just unnecessary sexual innuendo into this entire framework. <laughs> well, speaking of which, let me Hey, that was in- that was entirely spontaneous. That was that was improv. That's what fuck your jiu-jitsu does. It allows you to improv. <laughs> Well, all of this is to say that I'm sure for a lot of people, they're going to think, okay, this sounds awesome. This is a nice little sampler platter. I love the idea. How do I dig into this? If only there were a massive online academy that had a whole curriculum about fuck your jujitsu. If someone wanted to find something like that, where could they do it? BJJconcepts.net or BJJconcepts.com. Amazing. And by the way, that the, the improv analogy, I used it in one of my uh, safety briefings recently. And some, one of the students was like, you know what? I couldn't quite like connect to what you were saying until you said that, which is like, what's the first rule of improv? And it's that you never say no. Exactly. You never say no. You always agree. It's like, yes. And, Mm -hmm. and by creating that framework for them, they're like, and this isn't for fuck your jiu-jitsu. This is for rolling. This is like, when you roll, if you really want to develop If you're rolling and your first instinct is to be like, no, I won't let you do that. No, I won't let you do that. No, I won't let you do that. Good luck getting better, right? I mean, there's certainly a time for it. When you're doing competition training, absolutely. No, I will not let you you get into a guard passing position on me. But in terms of actual development, if you approach rolling as improv, and that's what, you know, what fuck your jujitsu does is it teaches you how to do improv. And then you can take that, that physical and mental approach to improvisation in response to movement. And you can then apply that to way more of your rolling. You can enter into situations that you would be fearful to enter before, both because you've developed the skill to respond to them through fuck your jujitsu, but you've also just developed the sort of the playful nature that comes with, with improvisation. And you will be able to develop a much more efficient and effective rolling style for development, for rolling with different body types, different skill levels, because you'll be able to say yes and not no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's an incredibly powerful concept. It actually goes well beyond just jujitsu, but pretty much in terms of any type of human relations. I mean, I, sometimes I get people on the podcast who really struggle with conversation and it, it's hard, man, because I'll ask them a question and they'll just go, yeah, 
I don't know. They just totally <laughs> kill the conversation dead. It's like, fuck, my editor's going to have to be working overtime tonight to clean this up. But anyway, Rob, thanks a lot, man. That was an awesome chat. I think it's really great to create a resource here that introduces this program to people because I think everyone kind of intuitively knows that, you know, stuff like this, the constraints-led approach is a good idea. But your program is really the only one I'm aware of where someone has actually contextualized this for jujitsu. So I think it's super valuable and I hope people enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I agree. I'm totally fucking awesome. It's true. And if you like, I'll put the link to Rob's stuff in the show notes. I'll also, of course, I think as everyone knows, if you want more of our stuff, bjjmentalmodels.com is the place to go. There's a ton of episodes on there, I think, as everyone knows, plus our database, our newsletter, a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, all of this is powered by our premium service. If you want to check that out, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's currently over 50 hours of premium content on there, including at least five hours of Rob calling you an imbecile, I believe is on there as well. So if you you really have not had enough suffering so far and you need more abuse from Rob, that's probably another option. <laughs> you oh, and, um, and, you know, we, we kind of alluded to our visiting student program. I always like to mention that if you ever want to visit my academy, one week free accommodations, one week free training, email us info at islandtopteam.com. You can also hit me up on Instagram at islandtopteam. We also have uh, at BJJ Concepts for the online academy. But yeah, if you're interested in visiting totally uh love to host you love to share the mats with you we have you know now that the world is sort of slowly getting back to normal we got people coming from all over the world again don't jinx it man we got monkeypox coming uh, yeah, up now yeah, you know, right? uh, <laughs> if only there was a, a vaccine for that sort of thing <laughs> yes yes well anyway with all of that said thanks a lot rob awesome conversation man i really appreciate it as always thanks a lot steve yeah and of course to everyone out there listening thanks to you as well talk to you next week take care